Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Lacoste and Izod. I remember as a probably like four or five years old, I had to have a polo with the alligator. And I, I remember that so clearly. I loved those polos. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO Podcast is Derek Yarbrough, the chief marketing officer at the J. Crew Group, where he looks over the J. Crew and Madewell brands. J. Crew began in 1983, 40 years ago, with its first catalog. Since then, it has grown to a multi-billion dollar clothing and accessories business with hundreds of specialty retail stores, about 150 outlet stores, and a thriving online business. Its sister brand, Madewell, was launched in 2006. My guest, Derek, has been at J. Crew for about 13 years, most of those years on the Madewell brand, before being promoted to CMO of the J. Crew Group in 2021. After graduating from Stanford with an urban studies degree, Derek worked briefly as a consultant before joining the startup Walmart.com as employee number 33. From there, Derek worked in direct-to-consumer marketing at several companies with memorable names, hipsandcurves.com, flirtcatalog.com, and Abbey Road's programs. This is my conversation with a CMO who, like me, loves travel, tennis, J. Crew sweaters, and the outdoors. Here's Derek. Derek, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I have to ask, are you wearing giant fit chinos right now? I am. <laughs> How did I know that? I only see you chest up. <laughs> Somehow I, ha I had an intuition. <laughs> I am. I'm wearing J. Crew cashmere on top and giant fit chinos on the bottom. My, my favorite pants, and I'm not trying to plug them. I, they're actually truly my favorite pants. I love the color of your sweater. The color is, for our audience? Lavender. Lavender. It's beautiful. Thank you. So how do you, this giant fit chinos just took off like a rocket and a little bit symbolic of the renewal of J. Crew, I suppose. How do you explain how quickly and how comprehensively that initiative took off? It was initiated by our new men's creative director, Brendan Babenzine, who came in and immediately looked at the assortment found some opportunities here and there, you know, in different categories. And for pants, we just needed to start showing up with looser fits, which is happening in the marketplace more largely. You know, men's moves a little more slowly than women's, but for sure it's happening. And the the most interesting thing about the giant fit chinos is, yes, it's a very cool fit. And so immediately got on the radar of some very cool people and maybe the more forward customer but what it also did was that it encouraged the guy who usually shops the skinny or the slim fit, it encouraged him to go to the next up, um, which was like a classic or more relaxed fit. So a lot of guys didn't buy the giant fit, you know, but a lot of guys started buying classic and relaxed, which was really interesting while we also sold out of the giant fit. Yeah, the power of something that makes news, right? You bring people into the brand and they go to different places, which is what it's all about. Exactly. So what are you wearing a lot these days yourself? What are you liking in your lineup? I am a jeans and t-shirt kind of guy. So usually I'm wearing, you know, I, I'm definitely not a suit guy and I'm not a sweatpants guy. I'm like in the middle. So I like, a, you know, I like a nice quality sweatshirt. I like a great, you know, relaxed fit button down. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in that middle bucket of like the hybrid. I can go from work to weekends. Um, that's, I have a, a singular <laughs> vibe. Well, I went on Instagram and that's about what I saw. But I also saw lots of pictures of tennis, beaches, friends, great travel destinations. And yes, a couple of pictures of you with Diane Keaton, 
Jane Krakowski. <laughs> so is this a is this a pretty good summary of Derek? I mean, it's the Instagram summary for sure. <laughs> I love that you were stalking me. That's that's exciting. <laughs> I treat Instagram as my own personal timeline. So I honestly don't really do it for too many other people. I think it's really about me and my closest people, whether it's family or friends or uh, my partner. And it's really more for me to catalog the timeline of the most important moments, whether they're big ones or just like really great small memories. So that's how I look at it. So in that regard, yes, it's a reflection of, I would say, my my best of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My daughter recently gave me a gift. It's a book that it's a line a day for five years. Mm. And it's kind of an interesting exercise. And I get a little bit derelict on it. And then I look back at my calendar and say, what, what do I want to remember from that day? So I never get too far behind. But just writing a line for a day over five years, I'm, I'm sort of half a year into it. It's interesting, right? Very. I love that. So I also discovered in my research on you that you have quite a track record as an entrepreneur, you know, a builder of things. You were an early employee of walmart.com when it was almost nothing, right? I think you were in the first yes. 100 employees. It's now, what, 75 billion in sales or something like that? Yes. <laughs> you were a founder of Abbey Road, a platform for study abroad programs in Europe, and you joined J. Crew in 2012 and was part of the team that built Madwell into the brand that is today. Yes. So I want to start with what is it about you that enjoys and is obviously very good at building stuff, pioneering new ideas, new brands? It's a great question. I think for me, it's the excitement of growth. So when I started at Walmart, um, which was, you know, a whole story in and of itself, Walmart recognized the internet was happening, e-commerce was going to become a thing and said, we don't have the talent in Arkansas to do this the right way. They partnered with Excel Ventures, a cap, uh, investment mm -hmm. capital firm in Silicon Valley, and they launched an office in Silicon Valley, hired Gene Jackson, who at the time was CEO of Banana Republic. And when I saw the press release, you know, I was in my mid-20s and I said, that sounds really exciting. I have to go work there and work for her. I made a series of calls because at the time it's, you know, who you're going to, you can't just call Walmart. Mm -hmm. So I made a series of calls and, and wormed my way into a in-person meeting with someone at Excel. And I said, I'll do anything, just get me in the door. And they found a role for me as a business development uh, slash strategy guy. And I started, I think, two weeks after Gene Jackson started. And the interesting thing was with my time there was I was just launching businesses, right? I was tasked with, you know, the the people on my team, we were basically just looking at like, what are the things that Walmart could do on the internet? Either existing categories that they're already in or new categories that they could enter. And so that was really the mindset of like, oh, we could, we could take optical and pharmacy online. We could extend their tire delivery, we could build a flower delivery business. We actually launched a DVD delivery business as um, which became competitor with Netflix back in the day. Wow. <laughs> and so I think I just got this bug of and this playbook of how to take an idea from concept to business model, to pitch, to putting a team together, to executing. And then at some point, handing it off for people to take it to the next level and, and actually manage it. And so I always had, I guess, that that bug for growth and entrepreneurship. And, and it, I would say it instilled in me a fearlessness and a scrappiness that served me in later life, especially working in a bigger company, just having that ability to pivot when needed, to be scrappy. I have a high degree of comfort with change and quick evolution. And I think that's really served me very well in my career. Jean Jackson went on to Nike, right? And made a ma name for herself at Nike. She did. With their online business. That was an early boss for you. What did you take away from working for Jean? <laughs> Fierceness. Mm -hmm. I'd say a bias towards action, but always having, having yourself grounded in the numbers and the finance aspects of a project. You know, you're always in business to make money. 
and to grow business, right? So it's always asking those questions of like, why are we doing this? What's in it for the customer? And can you make money out of it? And, you know, that's, that's the, <laughs> those are the questions you have to ask when you're an entrepreneur. Well, you're now CMO of J Crew, and you're looking out over not just one brand as you were at Madewell, but everything the company takes to market. So tell us about that transition. You're in the job about two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So take us back to that time when you were uh, taken off one brand, put over in, in this, I guess, corporate role. Tell us what that's like, how it was moving from doing the work of one brand to looking out for the entire company's business. Yeah. Did you like it? Was the transition hard? Was it challenging? <laughs> what did you have to change about your leadership? I would say I loved it because it's challenging. I'm having my 12 year anniversary this month with the company. When I started, um, Madewell was small. And so this is 12 years ago. And my attraction to the opportunity at the time was that, oh, Madewell is this startup within the J.Crew portfolio. And that to me was the exciting thing was it's the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. I get a chance to work on a startup brand, but I have access to the incredible resources and creative talent um, of the J. Crew company. And, you know, I have to admit at that time, I didn't really look at J. Crew brand as an exciting opportunity for me personally, because I was more interested in the emerging nature of Madewell. And in my head, I said, oh, J. Crew, they already have everything figured out. They're large, they're established, there's probably less room for someone like me. And, you know, so I got to, for, you know, eight, nine years work on this emerging brand, Madewell, and, and help be part of the team that scaled it, took it to a certain size, and, but also have a front row seat to what was happening at J. Crew. And there were a lot of initiatives that we shared. So I was very familiar with the brand, very familiar with the team, even though I wasn't responsible for it on a day-to-day -day basis. And when Libby Wadel, who's the current CEO, when she was promoted to CEO of the portfolio, I went to her and I said, would you consider having me become CMO of the group, kind of staying in my current role with Madewell, but starting to oversee J. Crew, And I said, look, I've had a front row to J. Crew. I've watched the ups and downs and the highs and low, and, and I have my own point of view on what the opportunities are, some of which are shared with Madewell's opportunities, and others are very distinct from Madewell's opportunities. And she took a chance, and I knew it was going to be a challenge. The biggest surprise is been how much, I would say my entrepreneurial background has helped in how much that mindset of being able to move quickly and make changes actually serves, can really serve well a brand that's very established. And so I'm, I'm hoping that I have brought some of that to J. Crew and, and, you know, disrupted our normal ways of doing things, but at the same time, also amplifying the things that we've always done well. So it's really the tale of those two things. And always a challenge. Anyone who works in retail knows, like, it doesn't matter where you are, retail is a challenge. Taking a look at your background, as I did, of course, a lot of people would look at what you have done and say, hey, this guy's really good at, you know, performance marketing, direct-to-consumer marketing. And you've obviously had to do much more than that for doing the things you did in your career. But you still have a very strong background in the business, the data, direct-to-consumer, which obviously is all about understanding people and being where they where you need to be when they want to engage with you. What about that background helped you come into J. Crew and bring this entrepreneurial background, this agile mindset? What about that helped you get off to a great start? Yeah, I don't have the typical, you know, marketing journey to CMO, but I think you're starting to see more and more CMOs in the landscape who have increasingly seeing these people who come up through that e-commerce and digital journey. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's a reflection of what's happening in retail as, you know, when I started with Madewell selling apparel online, you know, it was probably, probably roughly like 10 to 20% of apparel at that time was sold online. Now it's over 50%, right? And so you need people who are running the ship to be thinking digital first and very savvy and all of the things that comes with it, including 
you know, the performance piece and, and understanding of tech and understanding of user experience and all of those, those pieces. For me, all of it connects back to one thing, which is just having a maniacal focus on the customer and who they are and where they are and staying as close to them as possible. And if you do that, you will always be, I would say, on the cutting edge. So I think, you know, thinking back to when customers were just starting to get online and then spending more and more of their time online, if you were on that journey with your customer, you would naturally have taken your business increasingly digital. And of course, since I mean, in the last five to eight years, of course, now we all talk about omnichannel and the linear journey no longer exists. But again, part of that is just, again, staying close to the customer and understanding how they behave and how they operate. You look at over a pretty big organization. How do you convey that maniacal fo focus on the customer yourself? How does that come through and how you lead? How do you ensure that everyone has that mindset because obviously the power of that's incredible when everyone has that mindset. So tell us about that. You know, I'd say I really think of myself as one of the core pillars of my job is to be the customer champion. So every chance I get, it's always about, well, what does the data say, both quantitative and qualitative, you know, really trying to get as many people to attend customer insights meetings as possible and asking a lot of questions. And again, it can be stuff that's more what TV shows are people watching this month? You know, where's our customer? What's the difference between Madewell and J. Crew? But of course, also all the quantitative and just being, you know, I'd say demonstrating that behavior first and foremost, and just never, ever not being curious about your customer. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So let's talk more about J. Crew, your largest brand, and it's 40, 40 years old this year. Yes. And I know you're celebrating that. It's been through a lot, as we all would in 40 years. Great times and some not so great times, but it's definitely having a moment. So I'd love you to go there for us. So many of our listeners, obviously, every brand has its moments and has its rough times. I've worked on many that have been up and down. What have you learned with you and your team in refreshing and renewing this incredible brand that's been a part of so many of our lives? I would say we've learned a few things. So number one, people really care about this brand. So even, you know, at the highs and the lows, people are always rooting for J. Crow. And I and I feel like it's a little outsized to a normal retail brand. People really want to see us succeed. They really want to keep J. Crew a meaningful part of their life in their wardrobe. And when we've had the moments of lows, they root for us. And they're also not afraid to give us suggestions and feedback and tell us what they think we can do better. And when we're in a high, they're celebrating with us. And they tell us over and over again how much they love us. And, and I tell you, every event I go to in real life, I'm always stopped by people who tell me how much they love the brand or their mom loves the brand or these stories that they ha they tell. And, they, and I think that's just something very, you know, I feel so honored to be a, just a small part of that um, story and heritage. So I think just that love is, you know, one of the biggest things that we've, I would say we knew, but really kind of leaned into for the 40th. I think the other big thing is when we, you know, especially coming into this role, and I really took a deep dive into the history of the brand. It's very clear that J. Crew is at its best when it leads with creativity. And so that was the other aspect that I would say we've leaned into, not just in marketing, but the company at large. I think Libby's a giant champion of creativity, bringing in really strong creative and design talent into the company, developing the merchant talent here. And of course, being a great supporting partner to marketing 
and so many other functions, but all of us collectively prioritizing creativity in everything we do and raising the bar all the time. And, and, you know, this, if you ever spend time in this company, it can be really fun to like, you know, Mm -hmm. we spend a lot of time hashing out creative details and it's, we get really specific and it's very nuanced and that's half the fun of this job. And it's what drives it. It's the difference between a good month and a bad month. I want to get to that creativity in a moment. There are a lot of 40-year-old brands that people don't care that much about. And why do you think that there is that emotion out there among so many people? 100%, it starts with the product. People love the product. And if you can't create a brand that stands the test of time, if the product isn't up to par. And so a lot of the stories that we tell or that we hear from customers when we actually ask them, like, please tell us your J. Crew story. You know, yes, they have these great memories of the catalog and the, they're super inspired by the imagery, but it's always about the product, like the roll neck sweater that they've had in their closet mm-hmm. since the 90s or the barn jacket that was handed to them from a parent or an older brother, you know, the prints that they're obsessed with or how like they wore their first J. Crew suit to their first job. You know, just those stories are all about the product. And so, yes, the brand and the imagery and the creative is so, so important, but there were nothing without great product and great design. Now you went through the history coming into this and it's an interesting history and you found creativity was when the brand was at its best, creativity was thriving. You know, the team that you have there is like a creativity all-star team. Yes. I mean, there's there's Libby, your CEO, who is part of the Madewell team, has been at Coach, Gap, J. Crew, Olympia, creative director, Instagram sensation. Elle says she's one big reason the brand is cool. And then Brendan, amazing, you know, at Supreme, Noah, founder of Noah. So, wow. And yourself. So... I'd like you to talk about, I've been on teams where there's lots of creativity and we don't get stuff done and we, and we don't share sort of the same direction uh, or strategy for the brand. So I'd like you to talk about, you have these creative personalities. Some have grown from inside, some have come from the outside. And I just named a few. There's obviously many, many more. How do you channel all that to be in the same kind of place in terms of your vision, aspiration, purpose, strategy for the brand. It's all about having a culture of collaboration and embracing that. And I think what's unique here is this very careful balance of these experts in their in their various fields, right? You know, whether it's design, the merchants, the marketers, the brand creative, styling, we all have an expertise, but we are also, I would say, broad enough that we overlap. And so there is that kind of respect for each other's lanes, but also mutual respect that we can actually engage in conversations. Like I can give input on products. Olympia and Brendan are both very hands-on with marketing and, and how we do image making in this brand, in these, in this brand. And so it's, it's that collaboration and that's really where the magic happens. It's always more challenging when you operate in a silo, which can happen sometimes um, if you get too too focused on creating process and and at some point it can stifle you. And and so when you're in a big company like this, you need a certain level of process and structure, but you also need to be able to just like sit in a room or pick up the phone or text or something and just also hash it out sometimes. And and I think that's, again, that's part of the magic. But, we, you know, I, we're, I'm, a, I'm a purist as a marketer in terms of it has to start with product. And I think all of us here have that mindset. So the design visions for women's and men's really leads the charge. And it's always first and foremost about product. And then everything kind of follows that, right? And of course, great ideas can come from anywhere. And often sometimes our greatest marketing does actually come from the marketing team, but it's always in service of the product vision, always. How do you create that collaborative culture? I mean, can you, any any rituals that you have? Do you come together every Monday morning, Friday afternoon? Do you do, do trips together? Do you have sort of some, a, a rhythm in your year where you ensure that you sit down and you think about the fundamentals and you make sure you're on the same page? Yeah. 
any tips from how you work that reinforces the culture of collaboration? Yeah, I mean, it's some of it has been longstanding. So even before my time, that I think is still living today from prior leaders and legends who've walked the halls and some of the things that we've done. And so as new people come in, they just pick it up and we we still, again, will hash out creative decisions together in a room. Our product cycles kick off with a product presentation. So once the designers have, you know, concepted and developed their, you know, line for the quarter before the merchants have even made final purchases and, and assortments, they present their collections internally to the team. And so we have a chance to hear unfiltered directly from the designer, their vision for the product for the season, how they see it playing out, the stories that they imagine that we could tell. And, you know, every designer is different, but sometimes, you know, the designer can maybe uh, have a little bit more of clarity, a vision in terms of where they see the product being shot or maybe they have ideas on like, oh, this dress it would be so perfect on so-and-so. And so that, I would say that's like really a cultural touchstone here internally as a time when we all get inspired by the product. And then that meeting kicks off a series of planning for the merchants and the marketers to start making this come to life. When did you know in this renewal of the brand that you were on the right track? What were the early signals? that you had something that you were uh, very all very excited about? Yeah, I'm not sure I would say there was any one signal. It's like a, a series of small things that start adding up. And, and then you at some point, you feel like, okay, we have momentum and we have to keep going. You know, I think it's a combination of consumer engagement starting to increase and some of that more, you know, you can quantify like the sentiment is improving. We're seeing more engagement on social media. The press is talking about us more, the quality of placements and the headlines are getting better. So they're they're actually talking about our products and they're talking about our, our creative leadership. They're talking about, you know, the marketing campaigns that we're doing. So just all of those things start happening more and more. And I think we're even seeing that the more marketing is aligned to the product and the design. And we are behind the stuff that we feel most excited about as a brand. Those products are actually, we're seeing greater sell through. They're selling more at full price. You know, so all the things that we really want to hang our hat on and do as both a brand and as a high performing business, you know, those signals are, are really important to us. You said a few minutes ago that really fundamental to how you view your job is that you're the champion of the customer you're passionate about the customer, you're always curious about the customer and you role model that. Could you talk a bit more about your role? You're two and a half years into it now. It is a corporate role. You're overseeing everything you sell. How do you spend your time? I mean, how do you role model that the customer is number one priority? You know, when you, when you make your calendar out for the month, the week, whatever, the year, the quarter, yeah. what sort of thought process do you go through? I think some of it is time to the cycles of customer information. So it's really like the calendar is the skeleton is based on the selling cycles when we're kicking off collections and planning, when I know I'm going to get certain data back to get the reads on things. And then of course, like a big chunk of my time is spent developing the team. So I think about my role as yes, the customer champion, and I have to really, you know, be accountable for what's happening with the customer. Are are we bringing them in, the new people? Are we retaining the existing customer? Do they still love us? But there's also this aspect of capabilities in the playbook of a marketer, right? And so we have all these different tactics and things that we need to be doing and muscles we need to flex. Do I have the team to flex those muscles? Are there areas of opportunity, areas where I need to you know, work on the team you know, work more with the team on. And those capabilities can be sometimes very technical. So maybe more process oriented. Do we actually have the right skill set or the the level of qualities there? And other times it's more, I don't know, fuzzy. Um, it might be more of a strategic change. Like we need to lean into influencer more. Do I actually have people who know how to scale an influencer program? Right. And because we might be 
divesting out of another tactic or channel and into that. And so that's like a, I would say a very large part of this role at this level is, is thinking about talent. What do you love most about your job, Derek? The team. I find that for me personally, it's, it probably does ultimately boil down to those two things, the customer and the team. And those are two things that I'm just very passionate about. I've always been, I've always loved retail, browsing all kinds of brands and all kinds of categories, seeing who's doing what, how are they merchandising, how are they marketing? But also for me internally, I'd say the most, the greatest return on the job has come from the team that I've developed or, and have been a part of developing. I'm certainly not the only one here doing that. Um, a lot of people play that role in, in helping to recruit talent, retain talent. We have a great HR team, but it's, it's the most rewarding aspect and seeing people that, you know, I have individuals that I've worked here with here for 11, 12 years who are now starting to get into senior roles. And that's just incredibly rewarding to, to kind of watch their growth and success. I probably know the answer to this question, but in the two and a half years you've been CMO, what what are you most proud of? Is it the team you've built? I think it's the team. I would also say I I'm hoping that part of my legacy here is that I have elevated the marketing function in a company that's so, so fantastically terrific at design and merchandising that I hope I've had a small part in helping to to bring marketing up to a level you know, that's, that's getting close to the, the power that we have in, in merchandising and in design. That's a common topic on this show, elevating the impact and role of marketing in a company so that they can play at the same level as others. What could we learn from how you have made progress on that within the J.Crew group? I think part of it is as a CMO, it's wearing these hats, right? And, and helping all of your partners to see marketing in in the light that works with those functions. For example, marketing is a growth function. It's a revenue driver, right? So I need to work closely with my finance partners. And the, the relationship of the CMO and CFO is probably just as important as the relationship to the creative directors, right? Mm -hmm. And they're two very different things, but they're they're equally as important. I think to the larger team, you know, I would say the larger brands, everyone in marketing should be a customer champion, right? So, so that's something really important to me. And, and so we start looking at marketing as, yes, we, we're storytellers and we generate creative, but we're also championing the customer. We're also driving growth and revenue. We're talking about the marketing in those ways. So quantitatively, performance-wise, and, you know, because of the nature of the landscape shifting so much to e-commerce, we also have to be really, really closely tied at the hip with tech and being fluent in the language of technology, what's happening with platforms, how can we be supportive with our tech partners in creating customer journeys that make sense in this modern landscape and being champions for the work that they need to do and not having it be put on the back burner because the tech is a, a massive part of how we operate the business today. Yeah. And your investments, right? Yes. So I want to, we talked a bit about your career path up to now, but I want to go back to that a bit. Uh, going way back to your university days, you studied urban studies at Stanford, and then you somehow found yourself in marketing. So what, what happened? I was given advice early on pretty sure in my freshman year at Stanford, when I came in very wide-eyed and naive, and I didn't know what I was going to study. And Stanford gives you, I think, two full years before you have to declare a major. So they really encourage academic experimentation. And one of my close advisors at the time just told me, just take the classes that interest you. And over time, you will see what that ladders up to as a major. <laughs> hmm. So don't worry about the major. And so it yeah, kind of good. it kind of fell that way of, you know, my passion academically was subjects like sociology and urban planning, economics. So it was a little bit of these kind of wide ranging, but at the end of the day, it connected to this urban studies major, which is a little bit random. 
And, you know, towards the end of my academic career there, I, you know, honestly, I still was like, after four years, I still don't know what I want to do with my life. And I went the strategy consulting route because at the time, you know, I did have interest in business and I felt like it was going to be the best next step for me in terms of having, you know, I'd say exposure to the world of business in a broad way. And as a strategy consultant, uh, or I'd say a junior consultant, my my first three years out of college, it really was like getting an MBA. Um, that's what I would equate it to. I'm putting you through the ringer of, you know, how to do, how to create a model in Excel, how to put a presentation together that tells a story, how to pitch C-level executive. So all of those things were toolkits that, you know, I would say served me very well in my career. And it was really though the job at Walmart, which was the job that came right after consulting, that really gave me the bug for e-commerce and retail. So that's really how the transition from college to <laughs> college to consulting to e-commerce happened. Yeah. I mean, you, that was 23 years ago, I think, when you joined Walmart.com. Yes. How do you feel? How do you feel about that time? I mean, it was. It must look at look at it now and say, "Wow!" And you you were there in the early days of building it. So, how, how do you feel about that time? And what kind of lesson have you taken forward from that pretty foundational experience early in your career? It was such an exciting time, um, not just for Walmart, but you know, what was happening in Silicon Valley at the time, the rise of e-commerce, the three and a half, four years I was there was one of the peaks of the dot-com era, as well as one of the bigger busts of the dot-com era. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and for Walmart, it didn't stifle any growth. It just manifested in how we structured the company. So initially walmart.com was an independent entity. And then when the dot-com you know, bust happened, we were folded back into the stores corporation. And I would say we were one of the first major e-commerce entities that really started thinking actively about omnichannel. So for me, it was such a like, yes, it was super exciting to be in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s for a hundred reasons. Walmart specifically going from this like really true startup environment to being fully folded into the largest company in the world and thinking about all those implications of what that means and and how to move really quickly so it was it was everything and and the team at that time the early days of walmart.com it was an incredible incredible group of people you know and I still have friendships with with several of those people just just amazing amazing group before joining J. Crew in 2012, you started a company called Abbey Roads Programs. Mm -hmm. Tell us that story. So you started something from scratch. So what was your why at the time? What was your motivation? What was your inspiration? Honestly, I didn't have a lot of intention at that time. I think that's something I have been personally working on is I, I have had a certain amount of you know, luck and being in the right place at the right time with a lot of the career opportunities that I've had. And so going forward, my lesson has been to really think a little bit more about the intention and putting myself and preparing myself for what comes next. At that time, however, I had this opportunity to do something with a friend who had this idea. You know, he he was starting this this concept. He needed help. And it just kind of piqued my interest. And, you know, I was still young enough that, you know, I, I said, why don't I just help you launch this and make this something? And as you pointed out from your, your Instagram scan of me, I'm very passionate about travel. And this opportunity allowed me to not only start a business and test the waters with being a real true entrepreneur, but also getting to spend a lot of time traveling, you know, spending summers in Europe, which was, you know, really fun. I mean, that's, that was, <laughs> that was the biggest piece of this was, it was really fun. I learned a lot. Well, you left that and you joined J. Crew Group and worked on Madewell, which I think is the longest you have worked on any brand in your life, right? Yes. You know, I, I would say between that kind of entrepreneurial period 
and coming to New York to work for J. Crew, I was already starting to dabble in you know these kind of interim or fractional uh, arrangements with some emerging small retailers in LA. And so I was getting kind of my feet wet again with e-commerce. And ultimately I said, look, I really do am truly passionate about e-commerce, especially apparel. I love selling clothes on the internet for whatever reason that I want to go work for a real, a large brand. And all the brands that I had in mind, most of them were based in New York. I moved to New York and I was connected to J. Crew through a former colleague at Walmart hmm. who was now working in strategy at J. Crew and said, Hey, we're starting this brand made well, and we need someone like you who can really kind of figure out what to do with e-commerce. So that's really how it started. It was a personal connection, this very exciting new brands that no one knew what was going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, and, and now it's 12 years later and I can't believe it. What do you think made it such a, uh... A great brand, really, in a relatively short period of time. And we talked about product a lot. I'm sure that's going to be part of your answer. But why so many brands fail, especially in this category? Yes, and a lot of them did fail. Some of the competitor retailers who were also launching young brands at that time, a lot of them didn't survive. And for some reason, Madewell did. And I think it was a combination of a few things. I think it was a perfect balance of... The J. Crew leadership at the time, so Libby Wadel and Jenna Lyons, Mickey Drexler, they were involved in Madewell, but they weren't they weren't micromanaging it. So they let us have the autonomy to really create something special without all the pressure of running a large business or being constrained by process or all of the big company traps. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, we had access to their expertise and knowledge and vision and all these things. And so it was just that perfect storm of like, you know, yes, we're bringing in amazing people to kind of conceive this brand, but we still have access to these retail legends who can give us advice. Right. And I think that was like the perfect magic sauce. And a hundred percent, it was first and foremost about the product. And, you know, really talented designers and merchants who crafted, I would say, a very special product and a really great assortment. And so for my job, <laughs> selling the clothes and creating marketing campaigns on Madewell was a lot easier because it's the product. It, yeah. it, the quality was there. The design was there. Um, you had something to build off of. Derek, let's flip into the creative brief. And my first question is... When I ask every guest, what's the first brand you remember as a young boy making an impact on you? Lacoste and Izod. Mm-hmm. I remember as a, a pro- I mean, probably like four or five years old, I had to have a polo with the alligator. And I, I remember that so clearly. I loved those polos. Yeah, that's probably the earliest one I can think of. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was an early one for me too. We had actually, we, yeah. had, an, we had an outlet store near my home. I love going there and yeah. sifting through stuff and buying. I still wear, I still wear Lacoste. I go to France every year for the Cannes Festival. I go to their shop. They have stuff in there. It's nice. not available anywhere else. I always buy a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's a, another another a great uh, heritage <laughs> heritage brand. What's the first non-fashion brand that you remember making an impact on you? Probably a car. So as a young boy, I was very into cars. I mean, it was either Corvette or Lamborghini or mm-hmm. Ferrari, one of those. I, I had, I mean, I remember as a really young boy, I had posters of, yeah. I loved cars. I, I collected Matchbox cars. And so those brands I thought were, they were just so cool. Are you driving a fancy car now? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the, I'm in a, I mean, I, it's, I guess it's relatively fancy, but I, I, I drive a, a hybrid BMW and I love it. Nice. So what have you learned from your best boss ever? I would say the importance of hiring A-level talent. So I think just the general concept or notion that you always hire people better than yourselves and you can't be afraid to be outshined by people who might know more because ultimately the team that you hire is a reflection of your own performance. And that's what's going to, you know, especially 
the higher up you get or the bigger of an organization you're in, it's a reflection of the people who are doing the work. And that's the hallmark of anyone's success, right? It's, it's never about an individual. I'm sure you've had a few not so great bosses I have. <laughs> what have you learned from a bad boss that you've had? I mean, I honestly, I, I'm, re I'm really being honest. I don't think I've ever had a bad boss. Mm. Wow. I've been really lucky. I think for me, I, for some reason, most of my bosses have been women and I thrive under female leadership mm -hmm. for whatever reason. So, you know, these great women who've inspired me, um, whether they were, I was directly reporting to them or like, you know, indirectly reporting into them, women like Jean Jackson, Jenna Lyons, you know, Libby Wadel, um, and, and so many other people that I've been partners with. I think there's, I think it's just been about the collaboration. And, and of course, like no one, is it perfect every day? No, but I've, I could honestly say I've never had a bad boss. Lucky you. That's great. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. What's a campaign or initiative in your career that you look back and say, well, that's maybe the most meaningful thing I've worked on in my career? I am particularly proud of a campaign Madewell did with Issa Rae in 2020. And the, the theme of the campaign was, what are you made of? And so obviously it was kind of this like dual meaning of you know, the clothes that you're made of, but it was really about the stories that tell who you are in the world, like what makes you you, right? And I I just love the notion of that and I'm obsessed with Issa Rae and it was such a perfect fit for Madewell. And I, I couldn't have been prouder of like, it was, it was one of the first big, big campaigns we did for Madewell. And I still think it's, you know, I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's just, it's so fantastic. And she actually wrote it she wrote the script for the campaign. I think she wrote it overnight. Like we, we had a meeting, I think at four or five o'clock and the next morning she had already emailed the script and we, I think we changed one or two words and we shot it. I mean, it was, that was like the magic of, of Issa Rae, but I still look at that campaign. And I'm like, oh, it was, it was so cool. So cool. When, once you have an experience like that, I mean, your standards just change, right? Yes. <laughs> you just Because you, you have to top it, right? That's yeah. the whole, that's yeah. the whole notion of retail is like, now you have to comp it and you have to improve upon it. And, you know, and, and of course, like it's, you know, I can look back on something like that and I can point out a lot of things that I would change or details. Most people wouldn't notice, but as my eye has gone stronger you know, as my knowledge and expertise has grown, um, obviously there's always things I would go back and fix and improve upon, but you always have to do that um, with the next thing. And, and you always, there's also an element of constant experimentation and making sure that you're, you're putting out stuff that's a little unexpected. So you can never perfectly go back in time and recreate something that was already done. You always have to evolve it, which is the challenge. But yes, it's, it always raises the bar. Who has been the most inspiring person in your life? My father. Yeah. I mean, I can, <laughs> I can probably talk for a long time about what, him. What about him has, has been so inspiring for you? He is, he's just been a like nonstop cheerleader for, for me and my sisters. He's always there for advice and encouragement. My whole life, he was so open-minded with whatever any of us were throwing at him. I never, ever felt judged. And I don't think any of my sisters ever felt judged that we could come to him with any problem or, you know, me personally coming out, um, never, ever felt like it was an issue. And just kind of that, I would say bedrock of someone that, you know, is always, always there and always has great, great advice, you know, and a, and a solution for problems. <laughs> Well, we should end on that question, but I, I have to ask this one. We're almost, we're recording this in the fall. We're coming up on the Christmas season. So tell us what to expect from J. Crew. What's exciting coming from you this holiday season? Well, it'll be the, the fourth and final quarter of our 40th anniversary year. So we still have more 40th moments coming for holiday for sure. So I'd say definitely keep your eyes open. I can't give too much away in terms of you know what our holiday campaign will look like, but it's coming out soon. And I, I think people will really be really inspired by it. It's, it's 
stunning and gorgeous. And I'm, I'm so proud of the team here for, for executing it. We are going to talk a lot about our favorite categories. No surprise, cashmere will be at the top. <laughs> and there's some exciting, you know, I'd say product newness in cashmere. We're ready. We're on that fast and furious climb to Black Friday and December. So very exciting time here. Well, thank you for this incredible discussion and congratulations, Derek, on a great career. And and I, I, I love the honesty and the humility uh, that you brought to this show and you bring to your, your career and your choices and your role. Very inspiring for other CMOs and aspiring CMOs. So thank you for taking the time with us today. And, uh, and again, congratulations and have a happy, productive and successful holiday season. Thank you so much. And congratulations on this podcast. I love it. And, you know, it's, it's an honor to be thought of to join this. And it was a really nice conversation. So thank you. That was my conversation with Derek. Three takeaways from this one for your business brand and life. The first one, think about your role as a CMO or emerging CMO as a customer champion and a builder of A-level talent teams. Derek responded very quickly when I said, how do you see your role? He said, I'm the customer champion. I've got to remain curious. And it's my responsibility to build an A-level team. Second takeaway, always look into the history of your brand. When Derek took over the J. Crew brand, he went back to the history. He took away that when this brand was thriving, creativity was thriving. So he leaned into that. And he sees a big role of his job is to work with the other people in the company, the people in merchandising, the people in design, to collaborate and to have a common vision for what they're trying to do with the brand, with creativity as its foundation. And the third takeaway, kind of a fun one, when I asked Eric if he's ever had a bad boss, he said no. He has had a career of great bosses. He's learned from them. Try, if you can, to have a great boss. Never have a bad boss. It's a big aspiration but it's helped this guy be the, the leader he is today and the successful business person he is. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.